This episode is made possible by our generous patrons. Welcome to the Ink to Film podcast, where we read the book and then see the movie. I'm Luke. And I'm James. And this week we discuss P.D. James's 1992 novel, The Children of Men. from 4th Street Fantasy, which was a convention in uh, Minneapolis, Minnesota. And yeah, it's been a lot of fun uh, reading this book. And, and by a lot of fun, I mean it's been horribly depressing. <laughs> it's uh, it's pretty bleak. It's definitely bleak, but it's I feel like it's super immersive, too. I think that's probably part of why it's so bleak. Yes. Um, I Yeah, I've had a weird experience with this book so far that, that I definitely want to get into. I'm curious to know how how you've how you've uh, been experiencing it. We have both seen the movie. We should we should go ahead and say so we kind of know certain things. However, um, right off the jump, I can say this novel seems very different from the movie. Yeah, it's still to be determined. I have no idea where the book is going to ultimately land, but it doesn't seem like it's going in the same direction. Yeah, well, even early on, it feels pretty different. Um, right. I don't remember a lot of the specifics of the movie, but these specifics feel different so i'll be interested to, to rewatch it now and and see all the stuff um that may or may not be be there but yeah so i just wanted to say uh welcome any new listeners who may have uh found one of my bookmarks at the at the convention maybe you're checking this out or in, or anywhere else but uh because of that I, th- I figured we might as well kind of describe the podcast a little bit we haven't done that in a while basically what we're going to be doing with this project is we're going to be reading and discussing this book over two episodes which it lends itself nicely to because there's actually a book one and book two book one is called omega and i believe book book two is called alpha and we can we can definitely there's like a really nice delineation there between the two so we're, we figured we're going to cover it that way we're going to discuss it at length um in this first episode especially we're going to keep it as spoiler free as possible for as long as possible so that if you are like us and you've seen the film and you're just curious what this book is about, uh, we can try and give you a taste of it and you can make up you know, your own mind whether or not you want to read it or maybe just check out our coverage of it. I'm wondering if you felt the same way that I did. Uh, mm-hmm. I, it just, I think what it is for me is it's this realistic depiction of what I could see happening if pe- all people on Earth became infertile, or I guess specifically the men in this story, right? I think it's unknown um, whether or not like if it's just the sperm are, are aren't working anymore or what, um, but it does seem that just all of humanity has lost its fertility. Um, yeah, I mean this this speculative idea at the heart of this story is a really interesting one, and I think it leads itself down some like really interesting like philosophical pathways, and we see how society reacts to it, and for the most part, I agree that it is realistic. Although every now and then I'd find myself having some quibbles with some things. Mm -hmm. Um, I thought maybe some liberties were being taken with how, with describing how people were going to react. It's not to say it definitely wouldn't go a certain way, but it's like um, the author spoke with a lot of authority about how, you know, society reacted to certain things. And sometimes I find my, I found myself a little doubtful that it would go down that way. Um, we can try and get in, into them on, in specifics as we come across them. Yeah, we definitely should, because th- that was some of the stuff that I really felt like taking leaps in order to create points. But I felt it was really strong because I was I don't know, a lot of it made a lot of sense in terms of how people re- would react to me. But we, we should jump more into that later. I think clearly there is a lot to talk about in a b- biblical sense or like maybe like Christianity and, and like the parallels here, because. I mean, there are a couple things that point to how people react just in a religious sense to there being no more no more babies and children. Uh, But even even the naming of the books, Omega and Alpha is very Mm -hmm. clearly related to religion in some way. Yeah, um, it's a very thoughtful book and it uh, at times felt a bit meandering to me. But uh, it also, like you said, was immersive. And I think part of that is the prose. I think the prose is going to be a turning point for a lot of people when they pick up this book because initially I was a bit turned off by it. Um, I can appreciate 
sort of long meandering sentences, complex constructions, vibrant prose with with you know really descriptive and and long winded uh, discussions of nature or people's people's physical appearance, um, all that stuff. And I can I can I can get in on that um, as much as the next person, but I do have to be hooked by the story. And I have to be pulled along through it by a plot that I'm engaged in. And for my money, it took a little while to get going with that plot. And I, I, th- I think especially like the first 30 pages, I remember I kept putting the book down. Like it was really hard to get invested in. I feel like another reason potentially is just coming in with the expectation of the movie, right? Mm. So the mo- I feel like the movie takes off really quickly. And, and having two things i want to say i think that having theo's i mean we build him up from the from the very very ground up like we learn everything about his character we learn what makes him tick and i think that's a lot of what takes some time for this this to develop because it really is mostly i mean this first half is really i would say the fir- the first quarter of the book is just his inner monologue him rea- it's a diary so it's him reacting to the world around him and and how things have led to what they have but then he goes back to his childhood and he goes back to all of these other things that are kind of just ancillary that are that are leading us to understand him as a character going into the events of the novel. Yeah, it's it's it starts off in, in a as like a deep character study of this guy. And in some ways he is <laughs> I kind of laughed because um, of late there has come about a stereotype about literary fiction and that it is all about professors who are sleeping with their students and having affairs and like how <laughs> they're sad sacks who are like, you know, we should all pity them. And, and, and that's that's kind of the stereotype about literature, right? Like they're all like that. Is it the idea of like cursed with knowledge and like they, they're like so burdened by their existential crisis and stuff? Or what is it? Yeah, that they're like yeah. sleeping with young students, I guess. I don't know. It's, it's a stereotype for a reason because... I, on one hand, it's like, I'm sure there are books out there like that. But on the other hand, it's like, it's not really fair. That's that's definitely, you can't paint all of literary fiction with that, with that, you know, brushstroke. But <laughs> uh, there's a bit of that in this novel for sure. And uh, I find that interesting because um, as we will be discussing when we get to the biography, uh, the author is a woman, uh, Phyllis Dorothy James, uh, who I assume went by PD to have that sort of an uh, unknown gender of the author thing that, that often is uh, used so that so that the uh, sexist men out there might still pick it up and read it, even though they, you know, kind of not knowing that it was written by a woman. Right. Yeah. I hope I think that that's being done away with somewhat. Right. Or what do you I guess you would know better than me. Uh, You know, honestly, I can't really speak to that. I I'd, that would be a question for publishers or agents, maybe. Um, to really have a finger on the pulse of the publishing industry and and whether or not that's going away, I I feel like um, pen names in general are a little down, but I you know honestly I don't know, um, and yeah, as much as I, we want to we want to think that that's that that's going away, uh, I can say that it's still done um, right. for sure. I mean, you look at J.K. Rowling; that was essentially the reason for doing it. Yeah, she would have been publishing right around the same time, right in the early nineties. Yeah, that's true. It was a while ago. Um, but I can, I can think of if I, if I think about it, I can find a few others that are more recent that still do that. Use the first two initials. Um, I mean, some people would say like, why not? Then you sort of let the, you know, person picking up the book decide. And, Mm -hmm. and, you know, usually if if you look into it, if you read the back, you know, cover or whatever, you'll find the answer, but it's like, why put it on the cover? I don't know. Uh, there's politics to it. Um, I think if you are willing to get out there and and put yourself on it, then I think you should be proud. But there's also marketing decisions that go into it. So I I definitely won't begrudge anyone who uses a sort of neutrally gendered, if that's what you would call it, um, pen name, um, or or even just using their initials to kind of of keep things neutral. Um, When I picked up this book, I did not know that it was written by a woman. And you wouldn't really know it from reading it, too, because in my opinion, it's um, our main character feels like he's a bit of a misogynist in some ways, um, or I'm getting hints of that. I don't know. Did you pick up any of that? Uh, I think that, uh, yeah, I think that, I mean, what I'm assuming is happening here, she is invoking that, right? Like Mm -hmm. she purposely, I don't think that these are necessarily the ways that she feels, but she's invoking that for this character. 
and yeah, I think that I think that it is interesting because then it's it gets to the question of what what can you look at as a book and say like this was written by a woman and this was written by a man. I guess that's a interesting question to ask, right? Because I I do tend to agree with you. It didn't feel I wasn't like st- struck by the fact that oh this was written by a woman, but you know anything can be written by anyone is all I'm trying to say. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, and, and and you know maybe people would argue that it doesn't matter. We shouldn't be reading the book with that you know taken into account. Um, but I think uh, we've kind of. As a, as a society, we've moved a little bit past the, the pure death of the author criticism where where you say completely divorce the art from the artist. Um, whereas I feel like now there's a bit of a mix, you know, a mix of that. Like while maybe there's some good ideas there, we also still keep in mind the artist behind it, um, especially with how uh, how much access we have now to our creators. Right. And mm-hmm. and how their social their social media and their presences online and stuff can sort of engage that sort of discussion. I, I guess I'll give a little bit of bio here since we're talking about her. Um, Phyllis Dorothy James was born in 1920 and died in 2014. So only four, only five years ago um, at the age of 94. Yeah, I was going to say good for her. She lived a full life. 94 yeah. years old. So she was known as being an English crime writer. Uh, she rose to fame for a series of detective novels that s- starred police commander and poet Adam Dagliish, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Um, I've never read any of those novels. Um, but yeah, that's she was actually more known as a crime writer than anything else. I mean, just I don't, quick math. It seems like she was writing. She wrote this and published it when she was like 70, right? Yeah, and and I think that's I mean she had had a career before this, but I I do think that that's kind of inspiring that uh, fairly late in life she was able to write this book that you know partly probably because of the adaptation it got, um, but really is is seems like a classic to me as I was reading it. You know, well it's I think it's pretty well regarded right for people who and like reviewed well right. I think so. Yeah, that that that's my I you know I don't really know, um, but that that's my surface level understanding of it at least i mean yeah she looks like she was a lifelong resident of england as far as i can tell born in oxford died in oxford and the the sort of britishness definitely comes across here this is a a book that's set in in england and and deals with england uh, um you know british politic and and that sort of thing um it's really and i feel like this is a story that is sort of a cautionary tale about um the appeal of authoritarianism and how it can appeal to people who are scared and who feel like all they want is like comfort and to kind of keep what they have and not, you know, give it to anyone else. Um, And it's done from a position that's not preachy at all, because in fact, it's, it's often rather sympathetic of, of uh, this authoritarian figure um, because yeah, Theo had this relationship with him growing up. Um, his name's Zan, and uh, this guy who leads the council, the he's the warden of England, I think, is his title. Um, he's effectively like the dictator. He's a dictator for sure. Um, but you know, even Theo keeps saying like, "Well, some of this, like, you know, the people ask for, and that's what people want, and what does it all matter?" And I don't know. I think I mean that's definitely a very interesting you know, through line and, and definitely at the heart of this novel, because clearly this is going to be a very political novel. Yeah, I was finding myself really engaged with it because it did feel relevant right now. You know, it's like it's like this idea we're looking at Theo and he's coming from a background of privilege and he, you know, he lives a certain way and he sees people through he he judges people and he sees people through a certain lens. And then we we really get to know his character as complacent. Like he he isn't active in the community very much. He's a recluse for the I mean, in a way, uh, he likes his own individualism. He likes to be alone. And then we see we start to see how when he's faced with what's actually going on, he realizes like things need to be taken into effect. And then he's still reluctant to, to do anything about it. Up yeah. every single time an obstacle comes his way he's reluctant about it even after he sees some some pretty awful stuff so i just think that i i i don't know i think that it's a good message to, for right now because it's if you're not if you're complacent you're letting these things happen you know if you're not if you're not engaged with what's going on or you're not paying attention then people can start to abuse power yeah 
Yeah, I can see that. Uh, to me, Theo is is the prime example of this sort of societal ennui that is described in the book as a reaction to um, humanity no longer having a future. And I just I thought we could just like kind of talk about that as an idea because I think it is a really fascinating one. Um, this reminds me of the leftovers in a, in a sense, and that it's like you take a speculative event but then you try and play fair in every way possible otherwise, right? Like there's no other magical element here. Like everything else is very grounded in reality. And it's, it's, it's an attempt to describe what would happen to society if, and you know, in the leftovers, it's, it's a, uh, you know, people vanishing, but in, here it's, it's um, all of a sudden there are no more children. It's in the year, I think, 1995. It's a little funny because the the novel is set in like the year 2021 and it talks about the year 2019 and stuff. And I'm like, that's this year. So um, it's one of those where uh, it's 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 like going back and watching 80s movie where the future is like 2015 and there's like flying cars and stuff. Uh, It can be kind of funny to look at it that way. Although there's not a lot of that. There's not a lot of like really advanced tech, um, at least that I've picked up on. If anything, it seems like um, technology hasn't really advanced that much, perhaps due to the Omega event where where uh, people just stopped having babies. So something it reminded me about as well is uh, the have you, I don't know how much you know about Handmaid's Tale or the Handmaid's Tale. Um, I know the premise, but I have not read the book and I haven't seen any of the show. A lot of like the political goings on and, and like there's the event that that changed society and the way that people just a lot of the things that were going on with like the council and the way that uh, they were manipulating people and using people reminds me a lot of Handmaid's Tale. Really? Which I guess just to give a quick thing about that, it's just the patriarchy within America has completely taken over and women's rights have been stripped for the most part and right. so you're seeing the reaction to that and the the talks of revolution and talks of of uh you know unjust and and why these things have been allowed to happen and it, it reminded me a lot of that yeah I, I would agree that there are echoes of some similar sentiments here um but yeah just to just to dial in on this um after having seen the movie um, I remember that was one of the things that, that fascinated me about the movie was the premise and, and the world, right? Like there was often like you you were getting hints of things going on in the world, but not really having it explained. And one of the things I was excited for to read this book was to get more of that and more of the world and more of society and how it reacted to this and how it fell. And I would say it delivers that, you know, mm-hmm. quite, quite well. It feels like it's in the same world, right? Like I, I yeah. had, I completely feel feel that these two things, all the, other than the fact that the characters' names are the same and they're not the same characters, yeah. the world around them seems to be the same world to me. Mostly, I, I think the Children of Men film uh, world seemed a bit more dystopian to me. It seemed like there was more violence um, as like an everyday thing, whereas here. There's a lot of talk about certain areas actually still being quite nice. And mm-hmm. even though the people are just like fading, there's not a lot of talk of like car bombs and like much of stuff like random violence and stuff. It just it seems like, you know, there's a there's a, there's this penal colony that is a political political thing they're discussing. But it seems like the use of the political colony or the penal colony has removed a lot of the criminal element from society. And so because of that, you don't get as much um, violence the immigration is 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 in both for sure because for sure. although the immigration is being handled i think differently in the movie um which we can talk about how it how it goes down in the book but it's definitely a huge part of both okay so people stopped having kids and on the, on the surface of that i i guess i hadn't really thought about how bleak that is and the book does a great job of like taking you through the phases of that of like people thinking like oh it'll it'll only last a few years and it'll be fine and then like it'll it'll come up again and then like at, at where we're at right now it's been 25 years um since anyone has had a child and in fact it begins i think with the youngest person on earth dying is at the beginning of the book and death is very oppressive in this book for clear reasons and um i don't know i guess i guess because i was sitting with it longer i was able to really contemplate this sort of slow-moving individual apocalypse that everyone on Earth is faced with here because mm-hmm. it's it's not like there's a meteor coming to destroy the Earth and we just know it's coming at a certain point in time um, because the Earth itself isn't dying. 
In fact, they all know that the animals are going to outlive them and that the forests are going to retake the cities. And because the, all the animals are still having babies, it's just humanity is going to die out. And uh, that's a really fascinating idea to me because it's it's like it's like this. Yeah, it's like it, the timeline is different for everyone. And it depends on how old you are currently. And it's funny because like. People are childless in society and that's you know, what I mean, that's fine. And you can definitely have fulfilling lives and, and enjoy yourself up to the very end. But there's something about a societal halt that you know is coming um, where truly it's like things like studying history, things like um, leaving records, writing books. It starts to feel less important if you know it's all going to end in a certain kind of vague, like, like yeah, 20, 30 years, it'll all be over kind of deal. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know. It's really fascinating. I totally agree. So you know, we're here for a limited amount of time, even with with children, what we leave behind is legacy, period, whether yeah. it's legacy of friends and family remembering you and, and passing on your memories and the things that you did together to, to have to know that there's going to be nothing left. You can that's where I really felt like the the explanation of like the Omega or like Omegas and the way that they were coming up in a world completely like they know coming in and they have known since birth that there's not going to be any kids after them. The Omega is the final generation, the, the year, the final year in which children were born. That generation are called the Omegas. And then you have the people above them who the generation who was officially the last generation to, to have kids who, you know, there's like mass suicides and, and the rates, the, the suicide rates were like through the roof because it was there was like this guilt or something that they couldn't further the they couldn't further the human race any further. And then you have the older people who really remember what it was like to have kids everywhere. And they, you know, they're just I, I felt all of that was really fascinating. And the idea that they're trying to preserve like landmarks and and things that will that will stay f forever uh for maybe aliens or something to yeah. you know for for posterity they want they want it to be there for whatever race comes along or yeah what if what if some alien eventually comes along yeah um so there is a sense of like to me there's like a gender essentialism thing going on here and like the idea, like, I feel like you could look at this and say like, oh, it's, it's proposing that, you know, we're all here to breed and like, that's, the, you know, our purpose and that, you know, if you have a relationship that isn't going to result in children, that that's, that that's, you're not doing the thing you're supposed to do when you're here. And, and I think that that's a very surface level look at this. Um, while I don't know what the actual author believes, um, I think this premise is still really fascinating beyond that. Because it's not about whether or not you have kids. It's about, like, when, when I really, when I got to the point where they started describing how as the children aged out of schools and then, and like playgrounds, that they just started paving them over. And like, there are no more elementary schools. They shut them all down. Like, there is no more sound of children playing anywhere other than on, you know, like movies and stuff, which people either watch because they're obsessed with it or they can't stand to view it because it's too painful. And, mm -hmm. Just the idea of like society as a whole losing all children is like, I just never really thought about it in that way. And it's funny because I'd seen the movie in which that had happened, but something about the book like slowed it down enough to where I was confronted with these ideas and, and um, it was able to sort of elevate the, the notion even higher for me. Yeah, I think that that background is a lot of what I'm going to take into the movie now, because that's the kind of stuff where it's the same, it's the same in both. And yeah. You know the relationship. Uh, Theo kind of is thinking about the what it, what n having no children does to a relationship, and what it does to the sex and sex drive, and and what you know what that I, I felt that was really realistic as well because it's like, you know, people are either going to be because there's no children, people are going to be like sex fiends, or they're going to be depressed about the fact that they're having sex. There's like no reason behind it or something, and it felt like to me that was what the the author was saying was. You know, without the idea of children, even if it's if you're not trying that time to have a child, the idea that sex is brings about children and and with like, you know what I mean? There's like that baggage there. If there's no children coming from this sex and people like lose interest in it. And I, I found that to be really interesting. Uh, yeah. So that was one of my things I didn't agree with. Um, mm -hmm. I, I it it was very well 
argued. <laughs> um, and she, uh, she did a great job of laying out her her thinking as to why this that why this would occur. And this definitely added to the sense of like sort of like decay and overall ennui is like everybody's sort of like falling out of love with each other. And it's very dark, right? It's like there's no more love in the world. People aren't enjoying each other anymore in any way. Sexual relationships are, you know, falling away. But I don't know if I agree that that's how things would really go. There's a glaring lack of like humanism in this book so far. Um, and I, th I wonder if we're heading that direction. I don't know. But um there's not a lot of people, I, I, I don't know, I guess there's one religious figure who sort of has sort of a humanist, although it's bound up in religion in kind of an odd way, in a way that I think it makes it not work. Um, but there's this religious figure that gets discussed at one point who is all about like having love for each other and like and, and enjoying the time you have left, right? But then it's also about like how everyone's going to have a mansion when they're in heaven and all this stuff too. So I think mm -hmm. that's where it gets, gets kind of loses its way because well, to me, this is, this calls for an appreciation of like enjoying your time on earth and let it, and having that be enough. And if people could move towards that, there's nothing stopping anyone from enjoying their lives as much as they would otherwise. Um, sure. You, you know, you can be depressed about the future to come, but um, I don't know. I, I feel like a lot of the, you know, there's a lot of talk about like this, you know, this professor who really enjoys his wine and, you know, like how he wants to go out, you know, drinking his claret or whatever. I don't know how to pronounce that. <laughs> um, and and just sort of enjoying sort of creature comforts. And I think you would have a lot more of that, honestly. It feels to me like there'd be a lot of sex. Um, mm -hmm. If you look at like retirement communities, um, people who are not going to have children at this point and perhaps their significant other died. Um, there's lots of fucking going on in like Naples, Florida, <laughs> right. uh, or wherever else where these like a lot of like older communities and because people like enjoy it, it's fun. You know, they want to feel a spark of romance before they go, you know, and to me, that's very human and we're seeing that play out and the idea that that wouldn't be going on here, maybe even to a more extreme. Uh, I don't know if I believe it. I don't know if I buy it. Right. Yeah, I mean, I, I I'm on the fence about it now after you've explained that <laughs> that side of it. But I think I think for me, what I, what I got from it was what I was talking about is just that people are so so burdened by the fact that everything everything has changed because there's no children, and so like the bringing the baggage into even sex, I think is is an interesting way to look at it. Well, what about what about same sex relationships, right? Like they that's never had the promise of children to come from it. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's true. And, but, and I feel like that's something that honestly is is only briefly addressed in the book. And I wish there had maybe been a little bit more, you know, exploration of that. But I think honestly, it kind of it kind of pokes holes in the in the sort of premise um, that they're trying to put forward. And um, I don't know. I just I, I kept thinking like, you know, what is the LGBTQ community going to think of this at all? Like, for the most part, it's not going to have is I mean, I'll have an effect, obviously, because, you know, obviously still have children in that community. Um, but I don't know the idea that sex is so like intrinsically linked to having children. I just don't know if I could fully buy that part of it, if I'm making sense. Right. No. Yeah, I get I get you. And you've kind of swayed me to, to I understand what you're what you're saying now. Yeah, I, I think that you're right. I think that it, what it comes down to is just the point that she was trying to make and, and maybe it doesn't completely work. But, you know, yeah, I felt like I understood what she was trying to get at for sure. I, and like, I guess if it had been approached from different ways, like I, I think the idea that the humanity is essentially all suffering from depression and how people who are depressed have less sex. Like, I'd buy that. You know what I mean? And, yeah. and maybe that is what she's trying to say, kind of. But just some of the ways it was laid out just didn't quite line up for me. But, um, yeah, that was one of my biggest quibbles, I guess, with it. But but it wasn't like I was completely convinced. You know what I mean? Because obviously, like, this is an unknowable situation. Like, what would actually happen? It's very hard to know. Um, but you are, t you are also getting into like really, um, sensitive issues when you start talking about this stuff. Right. And so even us talking about it, I'm like really trying to navigate in a way that I'm hoping that I'm, you know, not, you know, um, offending any of our listeners unduly, you know, and I don't mean to, um, I, I just, it's, it's an interesting look at it. Um, but if you go in to read it, um, don't necessarily expect that every viewpoint is going to be equally represented because it feels like P.D. James had a very clear idea of what she thought would happen in this situation. And you may or may not agree with it. 
I think there will be more to talk about with when we finish the book and into the movie. But I think that I think that Christianity and and religion is really baked into this story. Mm. Um, I mean, the title "Children of Men" comes from a verse okay. uh, in the Bible, Psalm ninety three. Thou turnest man to destruction and sayest, return ye children of men. I'm wondering, we'll try not to bring anything from the movie, but I'm wondering if, if there was anything other than the evangelist, uh, the two that were talked about in the book, was there anything that felt biblical to you or, or were you getting any sort of, what I'm trying to ask is like, do you see any religion and, and let's keep an eye on it going forward? You know, a lot of it to me, because I, I would be turned off if I felt like this was an overtly religious novel. So I'm not saying that it's necessarily religious. I'm just saying that there's there's parallels and allegory being drawn. No, no, I agree. And and what I'm what I'm trying to say is that um for the most part I feel like it's playing fair. Like it's 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 giving some sort of like, oh, maybe it could be this, maybe maybe this has a meaning, but also nobody knows and 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 it doesn't help us. You know, and we see we see, you know, like the driver later and certain people being uh, pretty anti-religion, honestly, and and angry with God if if he exists and that sort of thing. And there's um, also the, the the evangelist that comes before the current one that's really popular. Yeah, Roaring Roger or something. <laughs> I might be right. having that name wrong. Something like that. Exactly. Yeah. And and he was saying that they were, you know, the world was being punished from this because of all the sin. Which that that I absolutely buy would become like that would be all the rage. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. But like apparently like he fell out of favor and was it yeah. stopped being popular because it was so depressing for everyone. Because people just refuse to kind of subscribe to that. I think also he was in a sort of televangelist sort of way. He was selling the idea of like if people just repent and change their ways that God will forgive humanity and children will be born again. Right. Mm -hmm. And the longer that it went on with that, with that wasn't happening, I think it was more and more people started to drift away from it. Like, well, this guy isn't right because it's not happening or like what's the point if he if, if it's not going to ever happen and I, it was also clear that he was sort of enriching himself through through this and maybe that came to light i don't know yeah i mean that that's all fascinating to me um i was really into a lot of so whenever uh theo would go through the countryside and like be like looking out the window um he would always see these little things these little vignettes you know these little you know, he'd see it. He'd see a bridge where the ducks came over expectantly because they remembered when children once threw them food. And like, there's all these like really clever details. Um, he sees an abandoned. I think when he's at the beach, one point he sees like an abandoned shovel and pail under the floorboards of this like beach area. And um, I just wanted to give credit where credits due. Like a lot of this writing is very beautiful. Um, it is complex. Um, they are often long meandering sentences that you can get frustrated going like, where is this going? But uh, it's great. And like once you get you once you buy into like that's how the description is going to go, it can be really beautiful. Um, I also noticed that every character is described really, really well. And but like a lot like we get like every time a new character is introduced, no matter how like important they might be, it feels like we're going to get half a page of just like really evocative description of this person to where mm -hmm. you feel like you really see them. And I, you know, I, I'm was sort of in awe of like how well, um, PD James was able to do this. And honestly, I, there was, I found myself marking sections going like, Ooh, remember this, remember this. Cause in writing like this, it's very powerful and it's very useful to be able to evoke characters, uh, so clearly. And there's a lot of that in here. Yeah. Specifically like the introduction of, uh, of the five fishes, Mm. was every single one of those characters that was a couple of pages of description in order for us to be introduced to them yeah or the, or the council right, right. What the council he meets with later like every single one of them but everybody like even when he meets that one professor um jasper jasper thank you like, there's like a several paragraph description of him and how he like is this classic pose and he walks like he's always walking into a gale and he's, he's got this chin that's like cutting the wind and I don't know, like his, just everything, like all of his clothing, it just really is described well. And, I, you know, shout out to that. That's cool. We're getting pretty far along in the episode now. Um, I think it's probably about time to actually do some summary, get into some light spoilers. I mean, it's only spoilers for the first half of the book. Um, we haven't read beyond the first half, so obviously we're not going to be spoiling anything that happens after that. Um, but I want to be able to dial into some of the more specifics of these scenes. So if you're ready, man, I think I think we better get into some summary here. Yeah, let's jump in.
Okay, so the narrative voice for the novel alternates between third person and first person, the latter in the form of a diary kept by Dr. Theodore, aka Theo Farron, who is an Oxford Don, um, which I thought was actually a really cool device. The idea of like having this epistolary ish style of like I'm writing a diary entry and then in the next chapter it would zoom out into that third person close uh viewpoint and I actually thought it very effective uh pretty cool especially in in terms of describing and introducing an audience to the world I I, you know it it feels very believable rather than it just like us being told it's somebody's perspective on it you know it's not just like it's not omniscient and it's not just saying this is how it is. This is this specific character's outlook on this bleak world. And whenever you get that first person direct like character who's writing the thing you are reading, um, it really brings you close to a situation. I think that's one of the powers of that form. And it really draws me into this world and makes it feel real. So very effective. So the novel opens with the first entry in Theo's diary. It is the year 2021, but the novel's events have their origin in 1995, which is referred to as Year Omega. In 1994, the sperm count of human males plummeted to zero. The last people to be born are now called Omegas. A race apart, they enjoy various prerogatives. Theo writes that the last human being to be born on Earth has been killed in a pub brawl. In 2006, Zan Lapiette... Theo's rich and charismatic cousin appointed himself Warden of England in the last general election. As people have lost all interest in politics, Lapiette abolishes democracy. He is called a despot and a tyrant by his opponents, but officially the new society is referred to as egalitarian. Uh, the, the plot really begins when Theo is approached by a woman called Julian, a member of a group of dissidents calling themselves the Five Fishes. He meets with them in an isolated church. Rolf, their leader, and Julian's husband, is hostile. But the others, Miriam, a former midwife, Gascoigne, a man from a military family, Luke, a former priest, and Julian, are more personable. The group wants Theo to approach Zan on their behalf to ask for various reforms, including a return to a more democratic system. During their discussions, as Theo prepares to meet with Zan, the reader learns of how the UK is in uh, 2021. Okay, so let's stop there. There's a lot to talk about. Um, that includes us meeting Theo, learning everything about him, and a lot of the side characters, right? We should definitely talk about his backstory a little bit. Um, yeah. Just specifically, his childhood was Zan. Theo. And how do you feel about young Zan? And, and do you understand? Like, I, I completely understand the character they're setting up with Zan. You know, like this, this sort of kid who maybe doesn't achieve... He doesn't have the highest marks. He isn't the best at everything he does. But for some reason, he has the charisma to in order to be the family's favorite. And then going into their their adult life, he, you know, effectively becomes a really high up politician and then manipulates his way into a dictator. So Theo also part of his backstory is that he was married. I actually before we get into that, Theo as a character when he's set up early because of the death of his father and the isolation that he felt when he was sick and the way that they were keeping the sickness from him, um, that I think all of that, I mean, it's basically stated from his viewpoint that, that he, because of that, he didn't ever want to have to look after someone. He always felt like that was a burden. And then going into his, when he's a father and, and a husband, he runs over his daughter and you know, he's affected by it, but it seems like he, what he's affected by more is like this, like humiliation or, or he wasn't affected by it. Like his wife was, he was, he was more detached. And I I find him to be this really interesting character because he's, he seems to be very, very selfish. And I mean, I think we can assume that it's being set up for a reason for him to have an arc, but he, and like that carries forward for everything that he does. And I think that gets back to what I was talking about, where every time there's an obstacle, he says, no, I'd rather, you know, I'd rather be take a back seat and let whatever happens happen. What a horrifying scene we get. It's brutal with him when he, when he, I mean, yeah, he runs over his own daughter and this was something like straight out of, you know, Pet Cemetery or something we just read a little while ago. Mm-hmm. Um, written so realistically. I won't, I won't even get into the details because I think that they could be too troubling for people, but it's troubling in the book. And then there's a moment where he's like, he knows what's happened. 
His like neighbor comes running over and is yelling at him, and he just like doesn't move. He's just stuck in the car, and uh, it was so real. Wow, it just like really made you feel like you were right there in the car with him, and you um, on you know, but like, you picked up on part of it though, because it feels like his relationship with his daughter, and he even says as much was 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 more fraught than it should have been. And in fact, one of the things he says that really made me kind of dislike him was how he was like, ah, I probably would have loved her if she'd been prettier, <laughs> um, and and some other things. He's so selfish and he's so self-centered that he, I think in his heart of hearts, he saw his daughter as an inconvenience too. I think yeah. he, he, because, you know, it's mentioned later, the, the mother, the, his wife is, says like after the, the child passes, says like, let's move to the city because that's what you have always wanted and you never wanted any of this. Did you feel in that scene when he actually ran over his daughter, he was if, to me, and maybe this is just shock or something like that, but I really felt like I understood his character in that moment because not, not like from my own perspective not my morals but just i understood what was being set up uh because he seemed so detached like he yeah. was he was talking about how like you know his neighbor ran up and was banging on his window and then he mentioned like and it made sense because like he never liked me like he was worried about the fact that or he was thinking about the fact that like oh his neighbor didn't like him and stuff yeah yeah i'm with you man uh i i i can see what you're saying uh he, he i don't know like i don't know if i like theo as a character honestly um I'm and I'm fine, but I'm fine reading about characters that I don't like. Um, I wouldn't have never been able to got get through American Psycho <laughs> uh, right. last year if if that was the case. Um, I'm not saying this; he's Patrick Bateman level of evil. It's more just that like he's kind of shitty. He's kind of ignorant. Um, he seems kind of sexist, honestly. But you know, he's he he's a historian. He's a clever guy. He seems to genuinely want society to um have its final years be good ones and he's wrestling with like do i or don't i put myself at risk in order to try and engage with the greater good right and that's sort of the question of 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 joining these dissidents and i think that question is very fascinating and like you said very timely because i I do think a lot of people are, are are struggling with like the feeling of helplessness that you can get where it's like nothing I do matters. It's not going to change anything versus like taking action. And even, even in the face of that helplessness of like knowing that even if I take action, it might not do anything. Um, is it still worth trying? And I think that that in the first half of this book, at least that, that a lot is like the question being asked, I think. Right. And I think that it gets back to his, his selfishness too, because it's being set up early and then he is confronted with, will you help us basically will you go talk to this person who you're close with and you know he it's he says that like after he meets with the five fishes he he like regrets he's like i wish i had never met with them because all of this stuff is just inconvenient for him he's he basically says like he hopes that the what's it called the quietus he hopes that the quietus doesn't change his mind when he goes well which we need to talk about because we haven't gotten into what that is you want to describe what the quietus is so the quiet the idea behind the quietus from I'll do it from both perspectives. From the perspective of okay. the government, is uh, older people were committing suicide, and it was you know it was a mess, and it wasn't always done properly, and basically like people were getting injured and not com- killing themselves completely, and it was becoming a problem for the government. So they so they basically invented this thing where a bunch of old people can together um, peacefully commit mass suicide, mm-hmm. and um, but from the perspective of the revolutionists, they see it as killing off the elderly because they're using resources that the younger could be using and and it might not necessarily be in the best interest socially right and the idea being that on one hand it's like people not wanting to be a burden so you can see people doing it but then on the other hand we see our main character witness one of these events and it seems fishy right um right he, he suspects that a lot of the people are drugged and then at one point um one of the women who is because uh, it's all it's all women um, and that's Jasper it ends up being Jasper's wife I think her name's Hilda um, mm-hmm. breaks free and escapes and tries to swim back ashore and he tries to swim out to her or was like wading into the surf to try and get to her and then um, some of the police basically just like pistol whip her to death and then end up actually pistol whipping him as well and, and knocking him out and carrying him back onto the on, onto the beach and just leaving him there 
And uh, this has a profound effect on our main character um, as he realizes how uh, just how awful things are going. Um, and that lines up with some of the other things he's told. And do we want to talk a little bit about the Isle of the situation at the Isle of Man? We, I think we should just talk about all five of their kind of the points of the five fishes, right? Like sure. the, the things yeah. that they want to change. So, but we'll talk about the the Isle of Man first. So it's basically any criminal from any crime will be sent to this island where there's no supervision going on, and your punishment is basically that you have to live with people no matter what crime they committed you guys are all trying to survive and live on the island together with no supervision and from our from the descriptions it sounds like it's mad max basically out there Mm -hmm. like it's just survival of the strongest and and there's complete lawlessness and murder and violence going on all times it was really interesting to hear the council talk about it as well because they keep skewing everything they they you know basically theo was like yeah, this is what's going on. There needs to be some something in place. And they're like, well, nobody wants to go over there and have that yep. be their job to supervise these people and like deal with that. And so they committed this a crime. So why don't they go, you know, the, the lawlessness that they're that they're looking for by committing a crime is what they that was what they deserve, basically. But it's but it seems like the justice system is very unfair. And you right. get the so implication you, that a lot of people are getting sent there who don't deserve to be sent there. Exactly. And that's the that's the problem, right? So somebody who's who we hear a story of someone who steals it. There are other problems, but that's a problem. (laughs) There's someone who steals a handbag. I just mean that that's the problem with the island. There's people who well, also it's inhumane regardless. But yeah, yeah, I I know know you mean somebody stealing a handbag isn't the same as somebody murdering someone. And those two people are on the same island. Yes. And uh, I I did. There was a part where uh, Theo visits visits his ex-wife later and it became very clear that that was a sticking point for her when she hears about these five things. And she's like, I don't want them to get rid of the Island. And I could totally see that. Like, it's like people she's, she's very obsessed with like her house that she has now and the safety she has there. And she's afraid. And she likes the uh, police state that they now live in because of the safety it provides. And that is a very powerful uh, and true statement about a lot of these authoritarian regimes uh, because they provide safety, um, as long as you're not on the out, you know, on the out crowd, um, that that is always appealing to people. And that's one of the ways that they, they, they can be so effective. Yeah, they use the, the idea of danger to scare you into into wanting to keep yourself and your family safe and all that. And right. Manipulate and fear of immigration way. is the same kind of thing. And, then we're, you know, that's definitely playing out that we're seeing. Right. Right. Which fear of, again, and I think... For the most part, immigration, fear of immigration stems from racism or classism. Sure. But it, fear of the other and them coming and getting the things that we have earned as a society or as a people. Right. And and it's the fear of like wanting to keep the things that you have and not let the other people have it because they don't deserve it. So the other one is the, I, I, help me pronounce this, the so, Sojourners? Sojourners, yeah. Sojourners. Um, they're the omegas from other countries and they're basically brought in for labor reasons just to, to work. And, and they're, it's, it's effectively slavery. Uh, yeah. so they're allowed to come here in order to, to just work their asses off. And then as soon as they get too old, they send them back to their country. So there's no, there's no true sort of gain in, in it for them. It's, they're just being used and, and thrown away. Um, and it seems like there's statements being made about sort of, British imperialism, right, and and the way that that's manifesting in, in this this future, and it's sort of like um, a lot of society's worst elements is being amplified by what's happening, and that's definitely a bleak way to look at at this sort of event, right? But I, in that way, it is believable, right? Like, and I can see why why a lot of this does does feel true, um, because we can see that, like, yeah, man, if you know why like people struggle to care now about other people but Mm -hmm. if you take away any promise of a world beyond the one that they're living in um you can see that some people would take that as a further excuse to just completely stop caring about other people and i think the other the other thing that's going on is that everybody's scared for when everybody's trying to to prep for the day that everything comes out from under them and this society even they're on you know they're on they're at a tipping point but when the electricity goes out because there's not enough people working in order to keep these things going, that's when it's really going to turn into full on just survival. Man, and that's 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 a powerful thought that they keep returning to, right? Like, what if you're the last 
what if you're the last humans alive? Like, what mm-hmm. do you do? And there's a part where he's talking to Zan when um, Theo actually talks to Zan, and he, they talk about how they would... Um, I think Zan says like they walk out to a bridge and like have wine and then shoot themselves essentially and like maybe they they maybe they like quote some Shakespeare or something or make or have like a list th- of hum- humans that they quote or something. And that was a callback to when they were kids. They they were drinking and shooting off pistols and and they were saying basically praising some people who were who were like Civil War heroes. Yeah. During whatever Civil War happened. Yeah. So I don't know. I mean that's dark. Um, but. The idea of it is just, it's like something out of the Twilight Zone, right? Like, it's so wild to think of. Um, and that's it, an image that the book returns to repeatedly. Like, he, he, at one point, he's in a museum talking to this, like, elderly, I guess he's a guard or he's, you know, someone who's overseeing the museum. And he thinks about how, like, you know, what if we, what if people just stopped coming and he died at his desk and then he's just entombed in here for, like, all of eternity, um, his body slowly mummifying and all this stuff. Like it's 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 a dark book, and and it's it's an image you keep returning to. And then the idea of the of the animals, it's like, you know, we have to keep them at bay now because it's like you'll get it all eventually, you know. And um, I also found it really fascinating the idea that like people having pets, having like christenings for them, literally like baptizing them and and truly treating them like children. Like there's cats that have been like pampered from the day they were born and um well also the dolls right and then the yeah the dolls people have these dolls that i could totally see like that they mother and treat like they're the you know real children and i don't know it's um it's it's definitely disturbing and and makes you think and and that's my i think my favorite part of this book is that even when i didn't agree with the authors sort of like where they came down on like how humans are going to react um and obviously this is all this is also set in a country that i don't live in so maybe that's part of it too but um, when I even when I didn't even when I disagreed, I liked going down those paths of thought and trying to imagine, trying to think like, what do I think would happen? And and in that sense, it was it was really interesting. Yeah, I think that it really it really makes you think about how fragile everything is. You know what I mean? Society is propped up by us believing that there's a future and us believing that these are the right things to do. And it and it's also if if you know a couple variables change, the entire world's going to shift and it's going to be you know survival. We're com- comfortable now, but survival will be the first thing on our minds if if a couple things change. So it's really it's really interesting to see the cascading effect. Even like I've ne- there's really no other story that's truly like this because even in like an apocalyptic scenario, the survivors are trying to create a new world to go forward in. Right? That seem that tends to be the case. This is like that. It's it's completely hopeless, and it's like. Uh, it's just looming like it's we're all just going to slowly die out and be and be gone. God, just really interesting and very dark, um, as I've said several times. Um, I'm going to read the last bit of the summary here and then we can kind of react to the end of this part. So Theo's meeting with Zan, which turns out to be a meeting with the full council of England, does not go well. Some of the members resent him because he resigned as Zan's advisor rather than share the responsibility of co- of governing the U.K., Zan guesses that Theo's suggestions come from others, and he makes it clear to Theo that he will take action against dissidents. The five fishes distribute a leaflet detailing their demands. The secret police visit Theo. He sees Julian in the market shortly afterwards, and he tells her of the SSP visit. Then he tells her that if she ever needs him, she only has to send for him. That night, however, Theo decides to leave England for the summer and visit the continent before nature overruns it. Um, yeah, so that that's basically where we leave it. That kind of definitely goes over a lot of a lot of different things. But uh, yeah, there we have it. I want to talk about the idea of revolution and and you know sticking up for the people who who need it in this in this situation where there is no future. And you know, Theo has. I mean, as much as I would want to side with people who needed it there he brings up a good point that it's how are you going to how are you going to motivate people to revolt against what's going on currently when all they want to do is peacefully well what a lot of want what a lot of people want to do is just try to live as as luxuriously as they can and as peacefully as they can mm-hmm. um and trying to i mean you know d- spreading these spreading these pamphlets and everything trying to get everybody worked up I'm really interested to see like if society will react to them at all. I mean, clearly the government is not okay with them being 
they're reacting and they're they're trying to shut that down but i wonder if we will see some some people start to stand up with the, the five fishes well and i like the idea that all it takes is a small spark and that ideas are powerful because clearly the five fishes don't have a lot of power and that's something theo repeatedly points out they don't have a lot of capital behind them they don't have a lot of numbers behind them um and in that sense they're not very powerful but they're taking the stand and they're willing to risk their own lives in order to put out these poorly made pamphlets and um it seems like the council is very threatened by this right like uh it, it feels like they it, it cannot dissidents cannot stand and they have to stamp it out and almost through their overreaction to it sort of like proves the point it's trying to make right exactly yeah you know what i mean and they, and they there's it's pointing out that this is not a democracy anymore and that well, this is this is a tyranny and that's this is the this is the privilege that theo this is what i was talking about before he's he's privileged he's in a situation where he doesn't have to think about these things on a daily basis yeah. and these people are bringing it to his mind and that's something else that i think today is relevant it's like people people are of privilege and people don't can't see themselves in in the shoes of others who are going through it and, you know, it takes him being talked to by these people and, you know, reluctantly going to uh, the quietus. And then when he sees all that at the quietus, he's like, oh, my God, I can't believe all this stuff is going on. But really, what am I going to do about it? And that's what you were kind of talking about before as well. It's like he feels hopeless. And he's also like and it's an inconvenience for him because it doesn't affect him directly. Well, and it's also like, what's the point? Because and that's the question that's always overhanging this novel. It's like. If we all die out in 20, 30 years, why bother? It seems to be like the the question that people are... And you can see that like if everybody's struggling with that question, it is going to be really hard to motivate anyone to do anything. Which is so weird because like we don't see the world after we die, in my opinion. You know what I mean? Obviously, as being someone who's not very religious. Yet there is something just so essentially human about the idea of like society going on past you and wanting to, like you said, have a legacy or make the world a better place um, for those who come after you. And when you strip away all of those motivations, it's just a really interesting thought experiment. <laughs> and I keep coming back to that. Well, you can see where you can definitely see where someone like Theo gets his mentality because there is there is nothing there. And so for him, it's it's like, what's the point? I'm just going to be selfish and enjoy myself as much as possible and not worry about others. So I guess what I'm ultimately trying to say with, with all that is that if the concept of the book and the movie is something that you find fascinating and it seems like it's like something you keep thinking about and it's powerful enough to make you curious about it. If you're listening to this far into the podcast, honestly, you're probably one of those people. In that sense, I do recommend the book um, just because it's going to give you that experience of like really contemplating these really like heady ideas. And mm -hmm. uh, you might get angry with the author at times. Um, you might disagree, but I still think it's going to be an interesting experience and, and something that, that I'm actually finding pretty rewarding. You know, this, this first half, it was very clearly set up to the events that are going to unfold from mm -hmm. here. So we really have the, the backbone of what it's going to be, but we don't really know how the events are going to come down. So yeah, it might be different in the novel. I'm enjoying it. But I'm also really interested to see that it's really there's two there's two major heady ideological kind of things going on here. Mm -hmm. It's the it's the hostile takeover by a government. Mm -hmm. It's the government taking over and and ruling over you with 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 basically full autonomy, and then and then there's this idea of what happens to society when when there is no point anymore or no children coming beyond and i don't know i think that like you said before it's really fascinating just just the impetus of the story just mm -hmm. the idea that there's no children and that means that people are easily manipulated because they're vulnerable or something like that and just society has gotten into the situation where then a hostile takeover is, is possible I don't know. I'm really enjoying it. And I think that it's really promising. I'm, I'm interested to see where it goes from here because I, it is going to be much different than the, than the movie. Yeah, man, I am in full agreement. Um, it took me a little while. I think at the beginning of the episode, I was starting to kind of say my relationship changed over time as I was reading it. After I got past that, about 30 pages and the plot kind of picked up, 
Um, and I kind of got used to this to the pros. There was a, there was a, a an acclimation period. Yeah, I really started kind of moving along more quickly for me, and, and I started really getting immersed in it and really honestly enjoying it. So really quickly, the last thing I did want to talk about with within the plot of what goes on here is Theo like hides away his diary and mm. then runs into runs into uh, Julian in in the market, and he like tells her that they, the cops came to his house and they're not searching, but cl- clearly it's from his perspective, he thinks that he did more harm than good. So like now instead of it being like a revolution out of nowhere, the government knows that it's coming. And he, because he's selfish and because he he's just this person who's who's really interested in, in his best interest, he's going to go run away on vacation for the summer to get away from all of this. Um, do you think that he's going to get interrupted on his on his vacation do you think that the summer is going to go by and he's going to come back or do you think like like i don't because i just don't think that there's really a way for him to not be involved at this point because zan knows that the people he spoke for the five fishes and now the five fishes are coming out so clearly theo knows them and zan's going to pursue him i think i could see some time passing i could see him going out and 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 taking some time um and we can see things progressing in in you know in society that he would return to. But yeah, I don't know. Maybe, maybe he won't end up because at the point we stopped, he hadn't actually left, right? He was just thinking about like how he was going to leave. So the question is, does he, he even to. actually leave? Um, yeah, I don't know, man. What are you, what are your thoughts? I just think that I don't think that it makes sense. I, you know, maybe he, I mean, I have theories of where it's going to go, but I don't really think that he is because his whole thing has been avoiding. He's reluctant. And I think that he's going to be brought into it deeper than he is comfortable with. And he's going to have to take the reins. I mean, and that's also like, I think there's some themes that are similar or at least some some plot points that might be similar in the book or sorry, in the movie. I am so excited to watch this movie, man, after this, mm-hmm. um, because I think there's so many little things that are happening in the background of, of the movie that are cool when you just see them and you don't know like what's going on there. But I think there are actually going to be a lot of like Easter eggs for the book, right? Like, Ooh, that's that one thing. That's this other thing happening. And I know what that means now. So I'm excited right. to see that and maybe even see additional stuff that they brought to it and their, their version of this book. Um, I think it's going to be, I think I mean, it's going to be a really fascinating adaptation to, to try and to try and to study, I guess, in the way that we do. Definitely. I mean, when we, when we approach a, a a project like this if if the the novel and the movie are different it's always going to be really interesting to see like what they changed what they kept the same and if it and if it was able to keep the spirit of it the same but this movie i mean this is like one of my favorite it's got to be one of my favorite movies right and it's been a long time since i've seen it so i'm excited to get back into it and and i just like there's so much to talk about it's such a i, I have a feeling i'm gonna i'm gonna like it even more after reading this book i, re- I really do yeah i totally agree with that because like I said, I'm just going to bring all of this baggage into it and just assume that everything is going on in the background. And, and like you were talking about, we're, there's so many little things that are going on that we're going to have so much more context for because in the book, like I said, there's like these two major things going on in the, in the movie. I feel like it's really one major thing that's going on with a lot of background stuff. Okay. Well, that's something to look forward to. That's not going to be next week, though. It's going to be the one after. It's going to be a three-week project, and we hope you stick around for all of it with us. If you have any feedback for us, actually, uh, I would love to get some feedback for this project. Write in and let us know what you think of the stuff we talked about, what you think uh, the novelist is talking about. Do you agree with the stances that the novel takes on humanity, or do you disagree? Um, if you'd like to write out you know, your reasoning behind it, I'd love to read some of that. Maybe we'll even read some of it on next week's episode if we get it in time and, and it works out for the length. Um, but yeah, we'd love to hear from you. Send us an email to inktofilm at gmail.com um, would be the best way probably to reach out with us with that kind of feedback. Also, we're on social media at inktofilm on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, and you can always uh, direct message us on there. This week, we wanted to thank one of our patrons, Mary BD. Thank you for being a patron and supporting the podcast and helping us continue forward. Yeah, and if you wanted to find out how to become a patron yourself, go to patreon.com forward slash ink to film and you can get access to all of our bonus content and all the other things that we offer on there. Definitely check it out if you're at all curious. We we do adaptation adjacent episodes sometime, sometimes and uh, those can be a lot of fun. We also sometimes do adaptation news roundups and things like that. So check it out. Please leave us a rating and review on iTunes, wherever you listen, Spotify. Google Actually, they're Play. calling it Apple Podcasts now, not no longer iTunes. Did okay. you know that? Apple Podcasts. <laughs> yeah, I know, because of the whole iOS. Yeah. 
Yeah, well, Apple Podcasts. Switch, everything. <laughs> Leave us a rating review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Uh, that really helps get the, the show out there and, and spread the good word. And we wanted to thank Jennifer Delazana for, the, for providing our transcripts. And thank you to Ross Bugden for the use of our intro and outro music. All right, that's going to be it for this week. We'll see you next week. Until next time. Thanks for listening. <laughs>